Well, what is true worship? What is true worship? Well, at the most basic level, we have to say the obvious. It should be obvious, but it has massive and profound and far-reaching implications. And I think what we know of ourselves and what we know of the church in America should lead us to believe that we, we miss this. The most fundamental thing about true worship is that it is about God. It's about God. It's for Him. It is to Him. And therefore, it is about Him. He's the content of it. He's the reason for it. Remember how Paul ends Romans chapter 11? That in Jesus, it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. We could say the same thing about worship. It is for him. It is through him. He sustains it. And it's, it's to him. Well, this is important to say and to believe and to live out in every generation, in every culture. But it could be that our time, our culture needs it more than most. Most of us have seen, most of us have been guilty at times of a very casual kind of Christianity. A consumeristic approach to the church, a consumeristic approach to worship. By and large, Christians in America are a very choosy sort of worshipers, and not in a good way. We have preferences aplenty, And we can easily bring a purely pragmatic mindset to Sunday morning. A very personally pragmatic mindset. So that we go away, maybe not verbalizing these questions, but in our mind, even subtly thinking, wondering, questioning. Did that help me? Do I feel better? Was that worth my time? Did I like that? We can be very subjective about that analysis. Did I like that? How, how do I think they did today in leading us? Were those my kind of songs? Was that my kind of sermon? Did my buttons get pushed? Good buttons or bad buttons? D.A. Carson has written this. You cannot find excellent corporate worship until you stop trying to find excellent corporate worship and pursue God himself. One wonders sometimes if we're beginning to worship worship rather than worship God. As a brother put it to me, it's a a bit like those who begin by admiring the sunset and soon to begin to admire themselves admiring the sunset. Some may sing the praise chorus, let's forget about ourselves and magnify the Lord and worship him. Carson says, but... The way you forget about yourself is by focusing on God, not by singing about doing it, but by doing it. Well, last week we began a mini-series looking at praise, worship, in the book of Psalms. We'll spend another three weeks doing the same, including today, thinking through a both-and kind of worship. It's a both-and kind of worship in the Psalms, because the Psalms won't let us Treat God's worship like a buffet, picking this, leaving that, grabbing the beef, leaving the tomatoes, taking what we want and leaving a whole lot. 
So I said last week, there are some things that might seem to be intention, but they go together. There are some things that we would prefer perhaps one and not the other, but they go together. We talked about five of these last week. We said that God's worship must be constant and corporate all week and on Sunday when we meet together. God's worship must be Bible-formed and Bible-filled. God's worship is revelation and response. He speaks, he initiates, we respond. We said his worship is about predominantly greatness and grace. That he is great, lofty, exalted, and amazingly, he's merciful and kind and good. And we said that God's worship must be historical and heavenly or heavenward. It must look backwards in in his plan and find hope there and look ahead to what's coming and find hope and vision, direction there. Well, I have another five for you this week, some both ands. These have to do with the ingredients of worship, what goes into worship. The first... Worship should be head and heart. Head and heart. With the mind and with the emotions. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Spirit and mind. Or the way Jesus puts it in John chapter 4 is that worship should be spirit and truth. You might know that story. Jesus in John 4 meets a Samaritan woman. They begin talking. Jesus is sort of poking at spiritual things, bringing up perhaps things of her past, her sin, and she senses that he's a prophet, and so she asks a theological question. She says, where do you suppose that we should worship God? That mountain or that mountain? Do you take the Samaritan view or the Jewish view? And Jesus responds in John 4, verse 23. The hour is coming. In fact, it's now here. So it's been anticipated, but now it's right in front of you. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Not on that mountain or that mountain. Historically, one mountain was the right one. What came before Jesus, there was a mountain where you worshiped. It was the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mountain. But Jesus is saying something's changing in my coming. Now, true worship is that which is done in spirit and in truth. It is mind and it is heart. That's what the Father is seeking. Those who will worship him like he is. He is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It doesn't say there are two kinds of worship. It says true worship and the only worship is that which is, is inside. It's internalized now. You see, in a very true sense, John 4 is saying that something changed with the coming of Christ. Before Jesus, in the old covenant, worship was more geographical. That mountain, that building. It was more bodily. So the Hebrew word for worship means literally to bow a body down. It was more external. It was more ritual-oriented. You know, you had sacrifices. You had offerings. You had burning incense. And these were big parts of Old Testament worship. 
And when Jesus came, he brought in a new worship. The book of Hebrews makes that argument at length. So again, let me stress, indeed, something changed when Jesus spoke these words in John chapter 4. But on the other hand, the Old Covenant, too, knew about head and heart. That God's worship is always spirit and in truth. God never intended his worship to be done thoughtlessly or joylessly, even in the Old Covenant rituals. And so there's a lot in the Old Testament about God's people doing the rituals of the Old Covenant, either without joy or without faith or without thinking. Yes, the New Testament shows us a fuller realization of true worship that comes in Jesus. And the New Testament sheds all that external stuff, the geographical stuff, the burning, the cutting, the killing. But the Psalms are still relevant to describe and define for us, to demonstrate that head and heart dynamic that Jesus spoke of. So let me show you what I mean. Would you turn to Psalm 145? We see head and heart mingled throughout here. It's not just a neat flow which goes from head to heart. That's a logical flow. It needs to be in the head before the heart can respond. But what you see in Psalm 145 is a tornado of head and heart and head and heart and head and heart. Trent already read some of this for us. Let me read it again, at least the first seven verses, and then point out some other things. Notice that praise is thoughtful and praise is heartfelt. I will extol you by God and King and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty. Notice just the heaping up of adjectives here and and adverbs and, and nouns, descriptor words. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate, I'll think on, chew on. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Then the psalm moves on to God's mercy, describing God's mercy, verses 8 through 10. Just look down in your Bibles and see. Merciful, slow to anger, steadfast love. But then verses 11 to 13, praise God for his kingdom in a variety of different ways. But then verse 14, praises God for his care. Verse 15 and 16, praise God for his provision, how he provides for small and great. Verse 17, praises God for his righteousness and, the other side of the coin, his kindness. Verses 18 and 19, praise him for his nearness and his salvation. Verse 20, praises him for his preservation, his protection, and also for his judgment. And then, look at the end, verse 21. In light of all of that, it resolves, David resolves, 
With his mouth he will speak the praise of the Lord. And he calls on all flesh to bless his holy name forever and ever. This is an example of head and heart. It's not mere emotionalism. It's not mere intellectualism. What that means for Sunday morning in corporate worship at Desert Springs or any church for that matter is that songs must be true. They must be accurate. There are certain songs we don't sing because we don't believe the Bible says this or that. Those songs must be about God, not about us primarily, but Him primarily. Those songs must be appropriately descriptive. He is great and greatly to be praised. He's not an inch great, and hence we write inch deep songs. He's infinitely deep. And so we keep scooping down to find new depths, new words, new poetry to put music to, to describe the indescribable. That's why we use historic hymns at times because you can look around at the modern world and try to find enough good songs that are theologically descriptive of our of our infinite god and you can't find enough you can't find enough for a church to use i don't think today so we write new ones we use old ones because he's great and greatly to be praised he's not an inch great we shouldn't go an inch deep I once heard Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, say that some contemporary praise songs are one, two, three. One word, two notes, three hours. Ah, That's an exaggeration, but you get the point. Some are like that. There is a kind of emotional experience that may feel like worship, and it may externally look like worship, but it's not. No matter how big your shivers are, no matter how big your goosebumps get. Tim Keller, a pastor in Manhattan, talks about some mistaken emotions that can happen on a Sunday morning. He says one mistaken emotion that can happen on a Sunday morning is nostalgia, where singing an old favorite song just sort of stirs up this emotion. It's not really about the content of that song, it's perhaps... A childhood song, so you think of childhood church, and and it just brings happy thoughts to you. At the last church I pastored in Denver, I remember some of the older ladies saying to me, Pastor, when are we going to sing some of the real old songs? And I think that Sunday we had sung A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is from the 16th century. (laughs) They didn't mean really old songs. They meant ones from the Romantic era, like... I come to the garden alone while the dew is still fresh on, I don't even know the next line, daisies or something. I don't know. That might be one of your favorite songs. I don't think you'll hear it here, though. Maybe it's a mistaken emotion of nostalgia, or Keller says, perhaps it's conscience clearing that makes us feel good on a Sunday morning. Maybe we feel better because we feel cleaner, because we did what we're supposed to do, and maybe we haven't done that in a while. You haven't been at church in a while. And so you come and you go away feeling better because your conscience is a little cleaner. Or he gives another one, mistaken emotion. Number three is 
an aesthetic experience. It's about the aesthetics. You know, we don't have stained glass or big cathedral ceilings here. So no one comes here because it's beautiful. It's just sufficient and inadequate and clean. Um, it may be slightly outdated with the squiggly cross thing. But, but people do go to big cathedrals to see greatness and feel transcendence. They'll go to hear a loud choir sing and it sounds impressive. I have had unbelieving friends come to church and really dig the music so they want to come back i hope something changes and they don't just keep coming for the music because that's just an aesthetic an aesthetic experience that's a mistaken emotion that's not heart and head heart that bypasses head isn't worship and head without heart is not worship it's got to move past thoughts theology doctrine truth about god Mark 12, 30, Jesus told us we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. Paul said in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Not just be happy, not just don't worry and be happy, but rejoice in the Lord and to do it always. And he repeats it, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Colossians 3, 2 tells us that we should set our affections on what's above, where Christ is seated. Affections are resting on him and our heavenly citizenship. Jonathan Edwards was a famous pastor during the First Great Awakening. And there were some weird things to some during the First Great Awakening. Some of it seemed too exuberant, too... Wild. What we would say today is a little too charismatic. Jonathan Edwards surprisingly defended so much of it as long as truth was the basis for it. Here's what he said. God glorifies himself toward the creatures, that's us, in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding, by showing us who he is in our minds. Two, in communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. Thinking right thoughts about God isn't enough for to also feel the implications of those thoughts. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. We want head and we, we want heart. And by the way, all this head and heart stuff we're talking about is equally applicable to preaching and the hearing of preaching, not just singing on a Sunday morning. Don't think singing is worship and worship is singing and that's what worship is. That's all worship is. Sitting under the preaching of God's word should be worship. You need to listen. You need to apprehend, grab hold of, think on, meditate upon, chew. In your brain, push down into your heart. Rejoice in. Feel it. That's why Edwards wrote so much about the preacher's responsibility to raise the affections. 
of the hearers. Let me give you another quote from Jonathan Edwards. He said, I don't think ministers are to be blamed for raising the affections of their hearers too high. That was the argument from some during the first great awakening. If that which they are affected with be only that which is worthy of affection, and their affections are not raised beyond a proportion to their importance and worthiness of affection. I know this is wordy. Here's one way of putting what Edwards is saying. On a scale of 1 to 10, if you're in your brain thinking on truth, that is a a 5 or a 6, there should be an appropriate response. Scale of 1 to 10, felt in the heart and expressed in worship, should be a 5 or a 6. Does that make sense? He's great, and commensurately, he's greatly to be praised. So when we think on his greatness... We should respond in our hearts and our very feeling with greatness. We should feel the greatness. So, Edward said, I should think it's my duty as a preacher to raise the affections of my hearers as high as possibly I can, provided that they're affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they're affected with. That's why, in the words of John Piper, preaching should be expository exaltation in the text and worshipfully before the Lord as it's communicated. Okay, so the first is head and heart. The second this morning is tasting and telling. Our worship should be tasting and telling. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see, but it's not supposed to stop there at tasting. We're also supposed to tell. Worship is knowing, rejoicing in, and saying back to God and to others what it is. It's telling. So Psalm 40, verse 5 says to the Lord, You've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds, your thoughts toward us. That's knowing, right? But there's rejoicing going on here. None can compare with you. And because there's rejoicing going on here, there is telling. He's telling God, none can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Yes, our praise to God is not a perfect representation of who he is. Of course it's not. He can't be completely summarized in the limitations of human words. But we take what he has said, ponder it, we analyze it, we, we look for ways to say it back to him in praise. This is no small part of praise. Praise isn't done until we tell it. Tell it to him. C.S. Lewis was very insightful about this. He wrote a book on the Psalms, and he wrote one chapter on praise, and he called that chapter the problem with praise. What's the problem with praise? Well, here's what he says. When I first began to draw near to belief in God, I found a stumbling block in that demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God. Still more a problem 
in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. Why is that a problem? Because, he says, we all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. So how did he get out of this problem? How did he work his way through to more clarity? He said, I didn't see, when I first thought that, I didn't see that it's in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to us. It is not, of course, the only way that he communicates his presence. But for many people, at many times, the fair beauty of the Lord is revealed chiefly or only while they worship him together. Another reason. But the most obvious fact about praise that strangely escaped me, he says, was this. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, verbalized praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I hadn't noticed either. That just as men spontaneously speak praise for whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. One more little quote here. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Praise is completed, rather the joy is completed in the telling of praise. So worship is, is knowing, rejoicing, and telling. And that telling in the Psalms should be hearty. It should be loud. The Psalms all over call us to shout. To shout. To sing aloud. Sing aloud to our God, our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Psalm 89 says, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who know how to celebrate their God and to do it with gusto, to do it with fervor, to do it with volume. In 1761, John Wesley, who wrote many hymns that we sing, along with his brother Charles Wesley, he published a hymnal called Select Hymns. And at the beginning, he gave some directions for singing, how to use this in the church. And I think he gave six or seven of them. Let me just quote four of them for you. They're good directions for us. One... 
sing all. See that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a single degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it's across you, if it's difficult for you, take it up and you will find it a blessing. Sing. Sing all the words. Secondly, he says, sing lustily and with good courage. He says, beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of it being heard than when you sung the songs of Satan. Now, I'm not sure John Wesley would share my view that some secular music is just fine. Some of it isn't. It's up to us to discern that in God's wisdom. But you know what he means, right? Even if you listen to non-Christian music, you know that there was a gusto, there can be a gusto about singing the world songs, just call them that. And it's ironic if we become Christians and all of a sudden get real mousy. Third, he says, sing modestly. On the other hand, this is only for a few people. You can imagine perhaps some older ladies in a smaller church in John Wesley's day singing quite immodestly. Sing modestly. Do not bawl so as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation that you may not destroy the harmony, but strive to unite your voices together. Probably no one in here needs that direction. We all sing too quietly. I probably sing too loud, but I sit up here in the front. And so if you sit in the front row, you may get blasted. Uh, That's why no one sits there. Ron used to, but he mysteriously moved. One more from uh, from John Wesley. He says, and this one's the most important, above all, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to do this, attend strictly to the sense, the meaning of what you sing. And see that your heart is not carried away with the sound, but see to it that it's offered to God continually. The third commandment is that we not take the name of the Lord in vain. That we not make it empty. That's just not for a, that's not a commandment that's violated just um, in Hollywood movies or at the bar or at sports events where they take the Lord's name in vain as a cuss word. It can be taken in vain in the church when we sing his name, we put his name on our lips in an empty, thoughtless, vain sort of way. God help us. It needs to be tasting and telling. And thirdly, God's worship should be emotional and external. It's internal and external. It's emotional and it's physical. We've already talked about singing. That's part of what it means that God's worship be physical In fact, that's probably, in the Psalms, the primary way in which God's external worship is expressed. But it's not the only way in the Psalms, as you know. 
Drew said earlier as we sang, clap in worship to the Lord. There's a command in Scripture, clap, bow, kneel, stand in awe, lift your hands to Him. Our God wants a physical bodily praise. He wants His praise expressed in a holistic way. He's to be loved, as I said, with all the heart, the soul, the mind, and strength. His praise is to even reach our muscles. Not just the muscles of our mouths, but our fingertips. Eventually, praise in the head, in the heart, through the mouth, should need more release, more escape. The spiritual heat in corporate worship, if it grows and builds, that spiritual heat, well, the teapot eventually will whistle, right? It needs escape. So we could maybe take C.S. Lewis's thoughts about speaking praise, that that's the natural flow of praise. It has to get out. It has to be verbalized. We could take his thoughts one step further and say, that God's praise, if we're really happy about it, won't just be shown verbally, but in other physical ways. Have you ever been to a sports game of your favorite team? You're there in person, you're seeing it live. And if you're a pretty big fan, and it's a pretty important game, don't you find that when there's an exciting score, okay, goal, whatever you'd call it, and that your, your perspective, respective sport... What do you do? You compulsively stand, right? You stand up. Arms go up like with a victory almost. You might clap. Maybe you don't have a favorite team. Maybe your, maybe your kid's team is your favorite team. Okay. What about a breakaway down the soccer field? And ahead of them is the clumsiest second grade goalie in the world. Mom, Dad, what do you do? Well, you know, I won't even imitate it. Because it'd be too embarrassing. We've all been there. We've done it. That's why I coach my kids' teams, because I have some extra restraint there. I'm a Detroit Red Wings fan, a hockey fan. I grew up playing hockey, grew up in Detroit. And I suspect that I might be a little bit obnoxious when someone comes over to watch a playoff game with me, uh, because when they score, I stand... I, I forced, I'm forced out of my chair to yell or to cheer or to do something. And why does that happen to me? And I really mean not why do I do that, but why does that happen to me? Because it feels so compulsive. Well, I got a lot of history with that team. I was watching them when they stunk. And now in the last 15 years, they've been the best pro team in all of sports. They've made the playoffs the last 21 years in a row. Four Stanley Cups. Their original six team. Now, here's my point. It's not to exalt the Detroit Red Wings. Easy as that might be. <laughs> it's not to confess the sin of idolatry. As accurate as that may be at times. My point is that there is no shortcut to compulsive praise. Praise. 
There's no shortcut. I've invested a lot. I watch a lot. I read a lot. I know a lot about the Red Wings. Casual fans don't yell. And casual worshipers don't shout. That's my point. We've all experienced exuberance in different degrees at different times when the conditions are just right. And you may or may not need to give up your hobby that produces that exuberance in you. It may or may not be an idol. That's not really my point. My point is that we should all be convicted about how quick our reflexes are to be exuberant in this thing or that thing and how dull our souls can be to the things of God. We should be convicted about how easy we find it to put the time in to be a good fan of this or that team this or that hobby, to know it, to study it, to watch it, to think about it, and to think that Bible reading or true worship seems impossible. Praise in the Psalms is spiritual and physical because the Lord is great and greatly to be praised, and that physical is hopefully an outward expression of the inner heart. So it's easy to fake it, Hands lifted in praise to God during the singing is not antennae up to God to try to get a spiritual reception. It's not a channel to get more spiritual energy to flow down. It's not saying that we want to reach out and touch him, even though many praise choruses say that today. We raise our hands in worship today Sam Storm says, because our hands speak loudly. When angry, we clench our fists. When guilty, we hide our hands. We hold incriminating evidence. When uneasy, we sit on them. He goes on and on giving examples. Then he says, does it not seem wholly appropriate, therefore, to raise them to God when we seek him in prayer or to celebrate him with praise? Don't do it just to do it. Don't do it to impress others. Don't do it to try to put up some sort of spiritual antenna to God. But do it when your heart is moved and you feel like a little teapot. You need some escape. You need some physical expression of his exaltation that he's lofty and we are low. Could it be that at times our bodies are accurate spiritual thermometers and some of us have ignored that fact for some time, for years, and that spiritual thermometer of our bodies on a Sunday morning is clearly registering chilly, freezing, dead. Don't fake it, but know that it should, his praise should fill us, heart and soul, mind and strength, emotional and external. Fourth, and these will go much more quickly, God's praise should be authentic and aspiring. 
I'll give you some alternatives. It should be honest, but also hopeful. It should be dependent so that we come to him and we say, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we might sing for joy and be glad all our days. What a dangerous thing it seems it would be to say to the all-satisfying God, help me be satisfied in you. But that's what Moses does in Psalm 90. That's dependent, but it's also determined. That's why he prays. He's satisfied and he's seeking. He's real, but he's restless. And remember, there's a whole category of this kind of thing in the Psalms. We call them lament Psalms. Many have gut-wrenching honesty about them. But they're restless about not staying in that gut-wrenching honesty. So many of the Psalms represent someone, as we like to say today, who's messed up. And the psalmist again and again demonstrates in prayer, in resolve, and eventually in even small praise. He's restless for more. Thirsty for him, and yet bemoaning the dry land. That's how it's put in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You're the water. I know it. I can't seem to get to you. I feel dry in the inside. I feel like I'm in a desert. But I, I thirst for you. I seek you. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary. I, I met up with God's people to behold your power and your glory. A few verses later, it looks ahead in faith, to this glorious anticipation that my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I will eventually not only get to you the everlasting living water, you're a stake to me. My belly filled up on fat and rich food. My mouth will then praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the night watches. For you've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. That is authentic and aspiring. It is real but restless, and we need both. We need honesty before our God. We need humility to ask him to help us to not stay there. That's why we not only sing in joy, but the psalmists say, sing for joy. Right? Singing sometimes is the means by which God awakens our heart and truth. We don't not sing because we're not worshiping yet. We glorify him by singing, even when we don't feel it. Confessing that sin of hard-heartedness. But that is often the means by which God moves in my heart to stir me in my affections. He, he ironically satisfies me with his loving kindness when I sing for joy and be glad all my days. And lastly, God's praise 
in light of all of the above, should be heavy and happy. Heavy and happy. Or sober and celebratory. You see this mingled all through the Psalms. In Psalm 211, get this. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve him with fear. Rejoice with trembling. That's a kind of weird rejoicing, isn't it? We saw that last week, right? Lucy wrestling with Aslan. She wasn't sure whether it was more like wrestling with a thunderstorm or a kitten. Isaiah 8 says, The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. That's a commandment. A little bit of threat there too. Let him be your fear, it says. Let him be your dread. And he'll become your sanctuary. God's worship should be heavy because he's big and we're little. Because he is holy and of ourselves we are not. Because he's to be worshipped and instead we worship anything and everything and often ourselves. God's worship should show us something of his greatness. He's lofty, he's exalted. You say, okay, okay, I got that then, right? He's holy, he's the judge. Let him be your fear, I I got that. You've stacked up a lot of things there from the Bible that sound right, but happy then. Can we really be happy then? If it's going to be heavy, can it be happy? If if there's going to be trembling, can it be ever rejoicing? Yeah, yeah, and listen, Psalm 35, the way it just heaps up. The different delights. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in us. He delights in the welfare of his servant. Psalm 68 says, The righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt, which means exalt him in happiness. They shall be jubilant with joy. Some of those words don't seem to me to be necessary. It seems to me like that's bad writing. Exultant, exuberant, with joy, come on. Unless you're just trying to show how deep the well goes, how rich our God is, that our God calls us to exuberance in worship, and some worship in the Psalms looks downright giddy. I mean, I don't know how else you say it. When you're talking about shout for joy and joyful tongue, what's a happy tongue look like? I don't know. God calls us to it. He gives it to us by his grace. And that's the key. Anytime you get that kind of giddiness, that exuberance in worship in the Psalms or basically anywhere in the Bible, it is springing from the fact that he has shown us mercy and grace. 123 times the Psalms speak of God's steadfast love. Almost every single one of the Psalms speaks in a variety of ways of his grace, his mercy, his salvation. Psalm 5 says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy because you spread your protection over them. 
Psalm 20 says, may we shout over joy in your salvation. Isaiah 12 says, with joy you will draw from the waters of salvation. Malachi 4 says, when the sun of righteousness rises with healing in its wings, when the gospel comes to us, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Happy calves. Happy because one died in our place. Jesus, our Savior, our righteousness. His death paid for. His death paid for our sins. His righteousness is given to us as we receive, as we repent of our sins and in faith receive what he so freely offers to us. And he offers us not only salvation, but satisfaction. He's the water. The living water, John 7 says. He's the bread of life, John 6 says. He's our healing, our sanctification, our redemption. He's our reconciliation. And there is no God like this God. Only the God of the Bible is gloriously lofty and loving. Every other God out there, so-called God, is either one or the other. They're lofty but not loving. Or loving, but not lofty. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over transgression. He doesn't retain his anger forever, but he delights in his steadfast love. There is none like our God. He rides through the heavens for your help. Deuteronomy 33 says. Solomon said in 1 Samuel 2, There is none holy like the Lord. There's none besides him. There's no rock like our God. He's steady. He's solid. He's good. He's great. And greatly to be praised. And we should seek that and do that with blood earnestness that results in awe-filled, giddy-like joy.